Hey everyone, hello and welcome to another episode of Art Blog Radio. I'm your host for today, Wit Lopez. I am super excited to be sitting here with two of my friends who are also really amazing artists who have come all the way to Philadelphia from Toronto to do something really, really amazing and impactful. Their names are Allison Mitchell and Deirdre Loeb. Welcome to Art Blog Radio. Thanks, Whit. Thank you for having us. No, thank you. I'm so excited <laughs> to have you here today. So, could you tell us why you're in Philly? We are here in Philadelphia to install and perform and exhibit a large sculptural and performance installation called Killjoy's Castle, a Lesbian Feminist Haunted House. That's very exciting. <laughs> so I know I know a little bit of the history behind the project, but the audience most likely does not. So could you tell us a little bit about how you came up with the concept mm. behind this haunted house mm. and, uh, and even why you named it Killjoy's Castle? Mm. Yeah, okay. Well, the idea came out of um, a long time, long-standing interest in large-scale installation and gathering people together to make a different world or create a temporary space. Um, and so uh, at, uh, about 11 years ago, um, I had this simultaneous experience along with Deirdre where um, an art exhibit that I was showing at different museums across Canada called Lady Sasquatch, which are these big, like, lesbian feminist, well, Sasquatches, monsters, sculptures, and they had, every place where they exhibited, there was a response around people having trepidation about whether or not this was adult content or sexual content or something that kids should see. Although, it was really six giantesses in a circle hanging out with each other. There was nothing that would be typically thought of as sexual, but it certainly was powerful of these like atypical bodies coming together in this space that was obviously something profound had just happened or was about to happen. And it was uncanny, it was a weird scale, and because they're Sasquatches, they're not dressed. <laughs> so, you can see their multiple teats. You can see their engorged, you know, areas. But nothing is happening areas. beyond. Um, I'm trying to be non-gender specific. That's real. So that's that's real. why I'm saying areas. It's not because of some kind of like conservative, like down there kind of thing. Um, but so that was a weird experience, and it really made us and. I think a lot about um, what are the things that push up against the kind of like in a in a supposed liberal culture the 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 limits of acceptability and acceptance. Well, if I might add, it's also you know it was bizarre to us that this should happen in an art gallery where you know as we know through the history of art through the history of the ages of art that that there are supposed to be within this critical cultural environment, there are supposed to be an enormous a multitude of possibilities for what art could be, should be, and how it and what it could represent. So, you know, um, as a kind of a 
I would say like a, a not so soft kind of censorship happening for us was really kind of bizarre. Yeah. So we started to try to decode it. Like, it was also, what exactly is it that is making you feel like there's something wrong see here? This. What's wrong? Here? What's wrong? Here? Especially since they had invited the exhibition, they had contributed to a catalog. Like, it wasn't it was like all of a sudden surprise, surprise, lesbian feminist Sasquatches. Like, they knew what was happening. <laughs> and you know, as an artist. This was like a really exciting moment in my life. I hadn't had that kind of opportunity for exhibitions. And then to have it kind of, to have it be simultaneously happening with these resistances or microaggressions or bad feelings or whatever you want to call them that were happening from folks within the museums was just like really confusing. That was in 2000, between 2008 and 2010. And around the same time, um, we both saw this documentary called Hell House about evangelical Christian haunted houses. And we're really moved by the documentary and inspired by um, the methods that these folks use to bring to people together to think through an ideology. Of course, it's also highly problematic. Some of the scenarios that they present for which people are going to, you know, go to hell for committing different sins. But the structure of it is intriguing. And so after this experience with the lesbian feminist Sasquatches, we started thinking about what it means to attach lesbian feminist to something that is unexpected to be lesbian feminist. <laughs> so not just the lesbian feminist bake, bake sale, because like, that's an easy. Quite frankly, we love baking. <laughs> We want to sell our wares <laughs> to other people who love baking. But, and also we want to raise money for important causes. Correct. We're being jokey. We're diminishing, but, you know, like, we're just trying to have a little ease here. But also um, attaching it to things that are unexpected, like lesbian feminist Santa Claus parade. <laughs> lesbian feminist oh back to school windows. Easter. Lesbian feminist Easter. What happens there? What oh would make goodness. it queer? And yeah. that's the question yeah. that is like a bigger conceptual thing of like what makes an object queer? What makes a movement queer? What makes mm. a motion queer? What makes a body queer? What makes a way of living queer? Mm. It's yeah. a, you know, it's yeah. like that, it, but it's applying it to something that there's a humor to the flip mm -hmm. or the like juxtaposition. Well, and what happens when you take a populist model or something archetypal, something you know that's normal that everyone does unquote. that everyone wants to do everybody wants to have uh go to see the christmas windows everybody wants to go to a haunted house at, at halloween everybody wants to so they're these really populist models so there's the twofold of applying lesbian feminist to everything but then applying it specifically to public modes of experience hmm. So then it also, and it wasn't like we thought of this idea and then we're like, let's make a lesbian feminist haunted house. It was more like, you know, you riff on ideas, you bring it to your people, you joke around, you hang out. And, you know, we began with this kind of like provocation of what would be scary inside of a lesbian feminist haunted house and who would be scared and how mm. would they be scared. So that brought up all kinds of hilarious conversations, um, 
some messed up ideas, mm. you know, some like getting into the murk and figuring things out. And, um, and then I don't remember exactly what the impulse was, but we you decided were, to go for it. You were invited to do yes. um, a project mm. for something that happens in Canada and all over the world now called Nuit Blanche. It's like an all night big event. Contemporary art event. Where institutions and, and organizations curate uh -huh. programs for it. Yeah, and it's and enormous. And things enormous. happen like in Toronto, sometimes it'll happen in an entire football field. Sometimes it'll happen in a giant like holiday in lobby or a mm. shopping center or a mall. This curator so. invited me to do something. I proposed Killjoy's Castle, mm. and they thought it was too big, I'm using air quotes, for <laughs> Nuit Blanche, this project which actually, you know, can take up football fields. Mm. So the, the kind of like, so your again. idea is too big for this world became mm. something that really was, that's true, Deirdre, that's the thing that made us dig our heels in and go, okay. Fine. Yeah. Let's get bigger. Right. Let's right. get weirder. <laughs> let's get. Let's make let's this see happen. Laughs last. <laughs> let's see who laughs last. Let's see who laughs last. But you know, I have so, that same feeling though about things. Like whenever somebody's like, "No, that's too big for our gallery," or "That's too," mm -hmm. I'm just like, "Hmm, okay, gotta oh, go." Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Just continue to expand and make things bigger oh, and I'm weirder. I know. You're like, "I'm sorry. Did you say I'm too loud?" <laughs> If you right, I'll be right back <laughs> with my megaphone. Well, but then so when so so two things happened. One was we tried to figure out, you know, how to do it. But you know, you started thinking about what what this could look like. And through the invitation that Allison had, we also went to Nuit Blanche, and we were like, this is not the right time or place. It's a one night thing. It's super oh. gen pop. It mm. like. Um, I'm glad it didn't happen for that. And then we kind of came up, we started planning more, and we came up with the title. And the title is, because you asked about that, Wit, the title is, um, we take our cue from a feminist activist and theorist whose name is Sarah Ahmed, who wrote this book called The Promise of Happiness. And in it, um, and even before that, she talked about this idea of the feminist killjoy. Um... And the feminist killjoy is just like in very broad strokes, this idea that um, society thinks there's something wrong with feminists in general, that there's something wrong with you that you would affiliate politically around um, feminism, mm -hmm. as opposed to, uh, and she talks about how it's actually flipped. There's something wrong with society and feminists happen to have a perspective. I mean, I know there's a lot, I'm using feminism very generally and there's lots of different kinds of feminisms, but um, just in general terms that the, you know, like feminists are thought of as being no fun, as being um, uh, killers of joy. So they won't laugh at the joke. <laughs> they question the system. They try to, I mean, the good kinds of feminisms. Dismantle. <laughs> right. They try right. to dismantle yeah. feminism, yeah. trying to dismantle power structures yeah. and question. And, right. and, so, and she talked about how there's nothing wrong with that, that that's actually, you know, like somebody snapping outside of like basically a repetitive stress injury, which is like normative culture. And um, that there is joy to be had 
from living a critical queer or, and or feminist and however you want to identify around those politics that there we do get great pleasure joy life-sustaining energy from resisting and surviving absolutely mm. and it doesn't have to come at the expense of someone else's oppression yeah so yeah. killjoy's castle is a play on like it's the ultimate feminist funhouse in a way <laughs> and the castle is like you know playing on um the you know a lot of those halloween spectacles will be like frankenstein's castle dracula's dracula's castle that kind of thing so we use that key and i was like it just made sense it looks good with the killjoy's castle um yeah, so that's where some of the impetus of where the name came from. Great, thank you. So for those of you listening, you may hear some construction sounds in the background. We are currently in the Crane Arts Building in North Philadelphia, and this installation is taking place inside the icebox. So that construction that you hear in the background is actually coming from inside the icebox where everything is being put together right now. So excuse the extra sounds, or don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, so outside of this project, the both of you are also independent artists. Like you mm -hmm. work together, but you're also independent artists. Mm -hmm. So what are your practices? Like what is the focus of each of your practices? Um, well, I am a primarily a video installation person. I've been making experimental films and videos for a long time. Uh, 25 years. Wow. Yeah. I'm older than I look, Wit. <laughs> yeah, I had yeah, no idea. I know. No <laughs> idea. 50 plus people. Amazing. This is what it feels like. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, so 25 years, and it's a, by and large, a very solitary kind of performance for the camera, sort of, um, uh, physical performance work that I record. It's gesture-based, it's very minimal, and I build environments with images of my body in space. Um, and I also have, you know, worked for a long time in a kind of in a variable environment where I work with a lot of artists. Um, I, right now I'm working with an artist experimenting with vibration and vibrational haptics, so video plus vibration. Um, and then working in a collaborative context where I work at VTape, which is a video art distribution organization. Um, but I was trained as an artist, so I, I mean trained. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> let's qualify. I went to art school for nine years, and all I got was amazing penship, penmanship. But um, it really, was really, um, you know, I could do a lot of types of art making. Um, I chose one version of that for my own practice, but... The work that I've been doing with Allison over the years is also, I've done work like this before, I worked with other artists on large scale installations and performance pieces. So it was very natural in a way to move from kind of embodied physical performance for the camera into performance and installation through Kyoto's mm -hmm. Castle. We also have made um, drawings together, we've also got video projects and video art installation projects together. So. You know, even though um, I have a solitary studio practice, Allison has one as well, the work that we make together is basically just smooshing those two things into mm -hmm. the middle of the room and seeing how they uh, interrelate and, and inform one another. Um, 
so it's, it's sort of a long time ago it stopped feeling like we did separate things and different things, but it's also important to acknowledge that, that we also have exhibitions and things out in the world together and separate, so um, yeah, it's kind of an interesting push-pull between this idea of the reinforcement of the solitary studio practice versus the collective, collaborative, community-oriented um, megatron that is this project. And my solitary practice, I did not go to art school. I'm self-taught and came to art through activism, and my, but also came from a family of makers, and a lot of, and craft was really, uh, has always been a part of my life, but I didn't really see myself as an artist until well into making a lot of stuff. And um, my work is largely about uh, using art for activist purposes, and as well as, sometimes these things are the same, taking, um, it's very informed by feminist theory and queer theory, and I've been very inspired over the years to take the, these really amazing ideas out of feminist and queer theory and make them sculptural. So present ideas from text and have people experience them in other ways outside of institutions like universities and colleges, but experience feminist and queer theory in the round, which is largely what Killjoy's Castle is about. Mm. And Deirdre and I also um, run a maverick um, gallery in our backyard in Toronto called FAG Feminist Art Gallery. And we've been doing that for since 2010. And um, in that, we work with a community of people to make more visible um, marginalized artist work, art, artwork that's not seen very often, and support immediately the artists who live in our neighborhood. I mean, full disclosure, I've been to their house in Toronto, <laughs> and um, it's it's absolutely beautiful, and I love their backyard. It's amazing. <laughs> and their space, their workshop space uh, in their gallery in the backyard is really, really beautiful and amazing. I I love it so much. Thanks, Whit. Oh, no problem. Thank you for, you know, well, full welcoming disclosure. me into your home. Whit <laughs> uh, also came through the Feminist Art Gallery and Fado Performance Art Projects to do a performance. Also true. Um, uh, hugely successful mm -hmm. performance Aww. in Toronto just Thank recently you. and Toronto's already like when's that wit coming back <laughs> <laughs> oh that's so sweet thank you Toronto <laughs> we can be very possessive mm -hmm. so you gotta watch out <laughs> we bond we bond for life <laughs> I'm open to that I'm, I'm very open to that <laughs> so um, another question that I had for you about this project is um, the archival aspect mm -hmm. because I absolutely love archives. Mm -hmm. I love things that explore archives in ways that are more than just looking through paper, mm -hmm. than, you know, more than just looking at old photos. Mm -hmm. um, you two have taken archival information from each site that you've had this project at, and you use that information mm -hmm. to create pieces within the actual installation. Mm -hmm. So can you talk more about how this, is not just uh, like a haunted house or a fun house, but mm -hmm. it's also an exploration into archival materials and into resurrecting, you know, 
are, I guess, LGBT dead things. Yeah. Um, okay, so how do we yeah, I think enter in here? Let's back up a little bit. Okay. Bird's eye view. So, just to reiterate, Kiljoy's Castle is a lesbian feminist haunted house, and people come to it and are toured through it in small groups. There is uh, a, an overall installation that can be viewed, as well as different scenarios, objects, um, and artworks inside that can be viewed and seen and unpacked by uh, the people inside. There's also live performers. And it's about a 40-minute tour through this giant installation. It's animated. It's live. It's an art piece in its yeah. most basic form. Yeah. Um, so it's not, really, it's not really a haunted house, though it borrows from the tropes, and I think that makes sense based on what Allison was talking about earlier around the Killjoy. Um, but what you see inside... Um, includes a variety of different scenarios related to the maligned and scary kind of histories of lesbian Queer women feminism and so and some of it's funny and some of it's not some of it's dead serious um, and there's always a good push pull between those two things um, and when we take it places we try to make it site specific and there's a few things inside the haunted house that are like an archive or that draw from local LGBTQ plus histories. And so we go to places, we talk to people, we find out what's important about the histories there, and we try to incorporate those into the haunted house. But the other thing that happens is, is it is accumulating over time. We're making all these objects. So let's say... We have a crypt of dead lesbian feminist businesses, bars, newsletters, organizations, organizations and ideas. And ideas, let's say. Because we do. And it's amazing. <laughs> every haunted house got to have every, a crypt. Every haunted house got to have a crypt. <laughs> but, so, so it has accumulated over the years by being informed through the site-specific conversations we have um, it in itself is it becoming its own kind of generative archive. It's, we, we add to it, it pulls on uh, existing histories, but it also has a time, it, it functions as a clock. So every time we do it, let's say it's five years later, different things have, have come and gone, and politics are shifting, and things are changing, and those, so we kind of pull those in. So. It's a little bit like if an archive and a tornado had a baby, because the, it's kind of like it blasts through the town and it kind of picks up and starts to throw into the air all these fragments from mm -hmm. from the moment. And rather that being it's written in stone, through. like most gravestones are, it's written in styrofoam. So it's movable, it's elastic, it's literally plastic. <laughs> and um, here in Philadelphia, we've spent time. On different in different ways to access specific queer Philly histories so we spent some time in the William Way archive um, and read through you know things like uh, there was a lesbian feminist journal here in the 1970s two different ones actually and spent a lot of time looking at those and learning through those means 
and talking to the archivist who's a historian and knows a lot, talking to you. Um, we've also held um, some community consultations to learn more about what's important to the histories of LGBTQ plus folks here and um, hired a historian, Wesley Flash, who's a local Philly person who, whose deep interest is in uh, LGBTQ histories here. So, and then some of it, and then we go into the studio and work with artists. So we made 57 new gravestones that are Philly specific in a week here. And in order to do that, we worked with a, probably a, a rotating group of about 12 to 15 people. And while you're doing that work, carving out these names, and we had, you know, a list of organizations and ideas and um, bars and things like that. And, but conversation happens as well. So it's like an official archive piece as well as the unofficial undocumented piece. And then we would add to the graveyard from those conversations as well. It could constantly be growing. It's, a, yeah. it's also, we did a small fragment of this in London, England. Uh, we also did a version of this in, in Los Angeles. We did a version in Toronto. So um, it also illustrates, it if it generates its own kind of material archive um, or reflect reflective archive, then what it also does is it also accumulates, and I think what we're finding is it's also accumulating histories that might not otherwise make it into any archive. Absolutely. So the history of uh, yeah, the, role that, <laughs> the role that um, queer black activists played in various formations of the queer community in London would likely not necessarily be hmm. pulled into any formal archive at Goldsmiths or whatever, right? Yeah. So, so a lot of resistant models and organizations and um, places that would matter to uh, that particular community as an example um, also came and went sometimes quite quickly. So they don't really actually, the archive doesn't even have a chance necessarily to grab them even if they wanted to. They're mm. ephemeral, they're, they're rumors, immediate. They're rumors and gossip. Yeah. Mm. And, and so it's been interesting to sort of think about this archival activity. It, I mean, I, it's funny, I don't, want to, I, mean, I don't want to dismiss the word, but I feel also like, you know, we can also make, and make a very fair argument against the archive. I know, we're just Sorry. cutting plywood. They've got to make <laughs> that fangs. castle. We're making fangs. Um, yeah, just to kind of, just also, we're very conscious of the fact that archives are also hierarchical and they have dominant trends within them that we wouldn't necessarily aspire to reproduce in any way. So, um, you know, just trying to think about this as a, as a, as something that accumulates knowledge shared and, and makes it public and opens up these conversations around what gets counted and what does not, which isn't unlike the Feminist Art Gallery or other things that we've done where we want to pull back the curtains, I guess, and reveal some of these, these failings of these larger models like an archive. So, but we were just talking about this in more detail recently with a group of students. And, you know, the more you unpack this 
part of it, the more you realize is the more you realize how much has actually happened to try to gather and at least temporarily try to gather up some of this information and hold on to it for a little while so that generationally and intergenerationally we can actually have some conversations, you know? But the archive in Kiljoy's Castle becomes this place where, as an artwork, it is a legacy project to use some language that you've used before about it. Um, but it also, so it works as a teaching moment. Absolutely. And also as an affirming moment, that would be our, a, a big aspiration of the project, would be to affirm mm. the experiences of a lot of the people who go through it and they see things that they recognize. Absolutely. And they, be, and they feel seen. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Wow, that's really amazing. Like I, I love this project. I love the concept. I love all the all the work that goes in behind the scenes that both of you have put into it. Um, so something else that I really love about this um, is the accessibility aspect that you also are planning for when the show opens. Um, so for me, you know, as a disabled artist um, who works with a bunch of other disabled artists. It's very important to me that spaces that I visit or that spaces where even I have things are accessible in some capacity or another or as many capacities as possible mm -hmm. for as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. And so from my understanding um, and a conversation that was had months ago now, um, the, the tours will be accessible mm -hmm. for folks. Could yeah. you say a little more about mm -hmm. accessibility? Yeah. It's very important for us, and so in, in some of the ways that we're working with access are ways that are really understood to be access. So we are have we'll have an ASL tour. We are going to have a blind and low vision tour. We will have um, low stimulation tour for folks who need that, potentially with the lights on and the um, sound down. Um, and we're, we, yeah, we're looking at we're looking at a, a Spanish language tour. We're looking at a uh, tour for sort of I would say younger, slightly younger audiences. And Sorry, could you could you repeat that? It's again? okay. Uh, slightly younger audiences, and as well as elders, mm -hmm. uh, queer elders. We're also um, in the process of. Um, thinking about other kind of ways in which we can make it accessible based on what local people need. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of that's in-reach and some of that's outreach. Um, I think the most important thing to keep in mind is it's also barrier-free financially, so mm -hmm. it doesn't cost anything to come to Kiltroy's Castle. You don't even have to book something. You don't have to have a computer to book something on Eventbrite or oh, anything like great. that. Or you just great. show up. Yeah. That's fantastic. Speaking of showing up, it's um, it's... There are eight nighttime performances, two matinees, as well as educational tours uh, between the 16th of October and the 27th. Um, and it's open in the evenings 6 to 10 uh, on those selected nights and uh, in the afternoon 1 to 5 mm -hmm. on Sundays. Um, it's important that people know that the lineup is part of the project. Being, waiting to get in is part of the community building exercises where you see each other and be like, hey, I'm here too. Um, so, um, yeah, it's it's a, it's an exciting uh, 
opportunity for us to be here, and we're hoping that a lot of people come to see the performances, but also um, don't be discouraged if you wait a little while in the line. It's part of the fun, and characters will animate that space as well as inside. So it has this kind of, it has a culture uh, both inside and outside the castle. We've developed three new characters for this haunted house that are specific to Philadelphia. We cannot, we cannot reveal. tell you. We, we cannot, cannot tell you there. No. Stop twisting my arm. Absolutely not. <laughs> but you're gonna tell me the secrets. But, but, all, but, find it hilarious. but all three of them will be animating the lineup. Yes. So, as well as being inside, they're they're the ones that kind of permeate. So it's also important. I mean, this is an art gallery, the Ice Box. It does a lot of things that are very atypical and quite quite impressive and dramatic because it's so un <laughs> unlike an art gallery in some ways. Absolutely. But. Um, uh, I think that it's happening here is, is, is what makes it so permeable and accessible as well because these guys have worked really hard on connecting us to the community and making mm -hmm. uh, every effort to fund it so we can pay people mm -hmm. as well as keep it free. We're so grateful to be invited by the Icebox and Tim Belknap and Ryan McCartney because um, we trust their ethics and the way that they have a track record with working with community. They definitely do. It's the thing that made this, yeah. one of the things that made this project so attractive, as well as getting to know Philadelphia and living here for a while. Yeah, <laughs> so we uh, arrived on the 9th of August and we'll be here until we take down the first week of November. So we're going to have lots of lunch dates with wit. Yay! Yay. <laughs> That's exciting. <laughs> Be jealous, everyone listening. Mm -hmm. Be jealous. <laughs> Well, that's all the questions that I have for today. Okay. I'm super looking forward to this, um, as are many other people that I've spoken with. Uh, this is a really great project, and it's going to be so amazing. I can't wait to find out what these three secret characters are. Mm -hmm. I'm really hoping one of them is some type of scary gritty. Oh, no. <laughs> kind of really hoping for that. Oh, no. Someone leaked it. <laughs> No one we've said anything. It there's was a just... worm amongst us. Yes. <laughs> no one said anything. I just love gritty, so that's, that's my own personal thing. Mm. <laughs> well, Whit, I want to ask you too whether this is on the record or off. But we've talked about it before. Will you come and perform in the haunted house? You're such oh, an incredible performance artist. Can we count on you to come and be one of us? Oh no! Yes. Yay! The tears are flowing. I know these fake tears. <laughs> Yes. Oh, well, this has uh, been a wonderful conversation. Yes, it has. It's a pleasure to talk to you and see you. I love you both. I know it's such a pleasure we to be here. We love you too. We love you too. You're so amazing. Thank you for sitting here and talking to me on Art Blog Radio today. This has been really great. For those of you out there listening, you can listen to this podcast on Art Blog's website, on Apple Podcasts, or on Spotify. So tune in next time. We'll talk soon. Bye, y'all. <laughs>